I'm going to jump right in there um, with some sources. Uh, but just before I do, I'll say a little bit more about the general project. What I would like to be able to achieve over these two classes is to articulate my own view about um, what revelation is, uh, what happened, what its significance is. So this is going to be an opinionated uh, um, set of sessions. Um, but I also want my own opinion to be informed, obviously, uh, by the Jewish tradition, but also to be aware of the various philosophical problems that lie in wait for a theory of revelation. Now, I think a lot of people today um, are um, very acutely aware of the extent to which archaeology, biblical criticism, um, philosophical ethics, perhaps, uh, render the um, belief in revelation problematic. Uh, what, you think the Bible was written, you think the five books of Moses were, were revealed to Moses in the, in the desert all those years ago, uh, but here's this evidence from uh, uh, biblical criticism that um, causes us to doubt those claims. Um, there are archaeological considerations which might cause us to doubt the veracity, the truth of many of the biblical stories um, and from uh, philosophical ethics. Uh, there are laws and, and commandments um, and attitudes expressed by the Bible, uh, expressed by uh, the uh, allegedly revealed texts of Judaism, uh, which strongly conflict with uh, our uh, current e understanding of ethics and uh, justice and probity uh, and goodness. So those are significant problems, but I'm not going to focus on them at all today. We're going to get to them tomorrow. And there's, there's a reason for that, there are a number of reasons for that. The the overriding or the overwhelming reason, the, the reason that, that, that is most uh, center stage in my thinking, is that I don't want the theory of revelation that I artic articulate. I don't want it to be reactionary. I don't want it to be, oh, well, we have to say this because of the biblical critics, or we have to say this because of archaeology. No, I want it to be kind of authentic and to emerge from the tradition. And wouldn't it be good if an authentic theory of revelation that emerges from conversation with the tradition does have things to say to those, so to speak, external worries. So what I'm going to focus on today are what I call the internal problems with revelation. Problems with the belief in revelation that emerge from Jewish texts alone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So now we're going to jump in. And um, the first slide um, takes us to Philo of Alexandria. Now, Philo was a Jewish philosopher, perhaps the first Jewish philosopher, but he lived before um, what we might recognize as rabbinic Judaism really got going. He was born 25 years before the Common Era. Uh, the Second Temple was still standing. The Mishnah hadn't been redacted, let alone the Talmud. And Though he's a very important philosopher, it turns out that his uh, immediate influence 
was uh, over the church. Uh, Origen, uh, St. Origen, one of the, 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 the early church fathers, was immensely influenced by Philo, and yet Philo was largely ignored uh, by the rabbis uh, of the Mishnah and the Talmud. Um, but what Philo tried to do was to write commentaries on the um, Tanakh, on the Bible. His Bible was almost identical to ours, but not uh, exactly. Uh, some of the things that he considered to be part of Tanakh uh, were later by the rabbis not included in Tanakh. For example, he thought of the, the, the wisdom of Solomon as a biblical text, um, which traditional Judaism uh, later wouldn't. Um, but he wrote commentaries on the Bible where he tried to reconcile uh, the biblical texts with the great philosophers of whom uh, he was aware and um, the philosophical tradition into which he had already been quite thoroughly initiated. Now, Philo of Alexandria believed that there was this thing which we might call the Logos. And the Logos is very, very central to Philo's philosophy. It is something like God's wisdom, which is a separate creation. If you read, for example, the biblical book of Proverbs, Mishle, especially chapter eight, where, where Proverbs talks in the voice of wisdom and says how God created me before he created the universe. Wisdom is personified into this being, this thing that God created. So Logos, the Logos is God's wisdom, but it's actually also a creation. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read uh, a summary of what the Logos is uh, with various sentences taken from uh, multiple works of Philo of Alexandria, uh, describing the Logos. Um, let's get this up. It is the image of God, the first begotten son of the uncreated father, right? So the Logos is the son of God, and you can see why uh, Christians would lap this up uh, some years later. Uh, it is the chief of the angels, it's the high priest of the cosmos. It's the shadow of God, or even the second God, Deuteros Theos, right? The second God, or maybe better translated as deputy God. The idea of ideas. It's the paradigmatic archetype of the macrocosm and of the human mind, the microcosm. It's the cupbearer of God and the toastmaster of the feast who differs, who differs not from the draft that he pours. The Logos fills the soul of rational man with gaiety and gladness. He is a lover of the alone and the solitary, never mixing with the crowd of things created and the crowd of things destined to perish, yet extending from the center of the universe to its furthest bounds and from its extremities to its center again. He runs nature's unvanquished course joining and binding fast all its parts, constituting the unbreakable bound of the universe, he mediates and moderates the threatenings of the opposing elements that the universe may produce a complete harmony. Now, all of those sentences uh, were culled from very different places by Lowe's work, um, 
And it's basically that summary is copied and pasted from David Winston's book, Logos and Mystiology in Philo of Andrew, if people want to chase up all of their citations. But it's actually hard uh, to follow all of these metaphors, right? Some of the, you know, the, these are all metaphors. Uh, it's a cup bearer of God. It fills the soul with gaiety. He's the lover of the, like, what is Philo talking about? It's not abundantly clear, but there are helpful hints here, like idea of ideas, God's wisdom, the paradigmatic archetype. Elsewhere in Philo's writings, God talks about, sorry, talks about Logos as the blueprint for creation, much like a builder builds a building in consultation with the architectural plans, God created the world in consultation with this thing called the Logos, the blueprint of creation. Later on in Jewish history, um, in a very influential book called Ben Sira, that um, was close to being put into the Bible by the rabbis. It was a contender for being a biblical book, um, but it wasn't included for various reasons. And yet it was often cited, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly. Ben Syra was a big influence over rabbinic thought. And what you see in uh, chapter 24 of Ben Syra is that this wisdom that was created for the universe that Philo calls the Logos is identified by Ben Sira, ben, ben Sira the Torah, the Torah that was created before the universe. It's the Torah that God consulted before he created the universe. So as you see, uh, the chapter begins with language that's very reminiscent of Proverbs 8, which describes God's wisdom uh, um, pre-existing the creation. It's, uh, it's, so it says, wisdom sings her own praises among her own people. She proclaims her glory in the assembly of the Most High. She opens her mouth in the presence of his, of his host. She declares her worth. And this is what wisdom says. From the mouth of the Most High, I came forth and mist-like covered the earth. In the heights of heaven I dwelt, my throne on a pillar of cloud, the vault of heaven I compassed alone. Through the deep abyss I took my course, over waves of the sea, over all the land, over every people and nation I held sway. Among them all I sought a resting place, in whose inheritance should I abide. And there's more and more and more. That was just the first seven verses. But when you get to verse 23 of this chapter of Ben Sira, chapter 24, it says, all this is true of the book of the Most High's covenant, the law which was enjoined on us heritage of the King Jacob. In other words, all right, Dr. Lewis, can you repeat what you just said? I think it got cut off. Um, your oh, internet might be a little bit. Right. So we see uh, in Ben Sira the identification of this wisdom with the Book of the Most High. 
So what you have is in Proverbs in the Bible, we're introduced to this notion of a wisdom that pre-exists the world. In Philo, post-biblical thinker, although he's second temple thinker, um, in Philo, you get this notion that there's this thing called the Logos, which is God's wisdom that serves as the architectural plan for creation. And in Ben Sira, uh, a Jewish text that almost, you know, that wasn't quite in the Bible, but could have been, so to speak, and an influential text, this is explicitly identified with the Torah. Now, when we finally get into the, uh, the rabbinic texts, you can see these pre-rabbinic notions, biblical and later, um, continuing to hold a very uh, important sway over the rabbi, by the artist Michal Barat, the daughters of Slochad. The daughters of Slochad in the book of Numbers approach Moses uh, with a quest of inheritance, the inheritance of of daughters and appears as if Moses doesn't know what the answer is to their question. Um, and here we see in a in a very early text, an early one of the halachic midrashim, the following text says, spoke to Moses saying, I think you're breaking up truly. a little bit. I think your your oh, internet sorry. might be a little slow. You're you're breaking up. Oh I'm sorry. What was the last thing that people heard? I think Okay. So God spoke to Moses saying, not Tzlochad Dovrot. Does that mean? The daughters of Tzlochad, their claim, so to speak, is just. They assumed that they were entitled to an inheritance. And God tells Moses, yeah, 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 they're right. Now, what does the Midrash say about that verse? Yafet not Tzlochad. Well, do the daughters of Tzlochad claim, or just is their claim? Because so is it written in front of me on high. This is a reference in Binic Uv to a Torah in heaven. God consults the heavenly Torah and he sees that what Benochad are asking for is it in accordance with the law. In fact, some controversial questions already could be raised. Namely, why doesn't Moses know that? Is there some discrepancy between the scripture that Moses had on earth and the scripture that God had high? Those questions are perhaps in the background of this text, but I'm not going to go there yet. What we see here in the Sifri uh, to Numbers, this 
uh, early rabbinic midrash is a reference to this heavenly Torah. So it makes it into the rabbinic imagination. Indeed, there are two amazing midrashim I want to share with you. Probably midrashim. The first from midrash Tankuma. And it follows. When God He consulted with the Torah and then he created the world. This is very like Philo's notion of the architectural uh, blueprint that God consults. As it's written, and here the Midrash ties this idea back in Proverbs 8, this biblical source, existent wisdom. Proverbs 8 says, Li which is something like, with me is advice and uh, and, under, and, and wisdom and art and, and or I'm wise and there is there is understanding and and strength with me what who is speaking in that in that uh, chapter of Proverbs according to the rabbis it's the Torah that's speaking the Torah which served as a source of advice so to speak when God created the world the Torah how was it written? It was white fire with black fire, perhaps on top of it. So the paper was white fire and the writing was black fire. Hence, it's my, this fiery book uh, on, on the slide. How do we know that? As it says in the book, The Song of Songs, his locks, his, his, his curly locks are, are black like a raven. What are these locks? It's a reference to the letters Torah. In each and every crown of the uh, the letters of the Torah are encoded heaps and heaps of traditions. Similar text. Heaps and heaps of hachot, Jewish laws. Okay. In a similar text, um, from the opening to Bereshit Rabbah, in the name of Rabbi Hoshaya. Now this is interesting because as far as we know, Philo hadn't made a big impact over the, 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 the early rabbis. But Rebbe Hoshaya lived in Caesarea and was a contemporary of Origen, the church father, who also lived in Caesarea. And there is some speculation that Rebbe Hoshaya may have absorbed some ideas of Philo through Origen, his contemporary in Caesarea. 
it's speculative, but you'll see why when we examine this text in the name of Rabbi Hoshaya, who quotes again Proverbs 8 that says, which means I was his Ammon. I'm not going to say what that word means yet. And I also was his plaything every day. And the, Mid the Midrash wants to know what does Ammon mean? So one suggestion of Rabbi Hoshaya is it means Uman, which is talking about something like the work of a skilled artisan. Hatorah Omeret, the Torah is saying, Ani Hayiti Kli Umnuto Shalakadosh I was a tool in the artistry of the Blessed One, of the, of the Holy One, blessed be He. Bunohag Sheba Olam, Melech Basar Vadam Boner Palatin, in the ways of the world, a king of flesh and blood builds a palace. Eino Boneota Midat Atzmo, he doesn't build it of his own, you know, just spontaneously. Ela midat uman. He, rather, he builds it uh, in consultation, I suppose, with an artisan. Vaha uman eino boneota midat atzmo. And even the artisan doesn't build it spontaneously. Ela diftraot ufinksaot yeshlo. He has blueprints, yeah, parchment with, uh, with plans drawn on it. Ladat heichu oseh chadarim, so he'll know how to make rooms. Heichu oseh pishpashin. Kachaya kadosh baruchu mabit b'torah. So too, when the Holy One, blessed be he, looked into the Torah, uvoreh atolam, and he created the world, amra bereshit bara Elohim. It says, in the beginning, God created God created. The ain reshit el Torah. What does the word reshit mean? It means Torah. Right? Reshit chokhmah yuat Hashem. In the beginning is wisdom. The reshit. So what does but reshit mean? According to the Midrash, it means with the Torah. With the Torah, God created the world. And here, this notion of an architect, um, is exactly the notion that um, Philo uses, which leads to this, this speculation that perhaps Rabbi Hoshaya had some um, intellectual contact, so to speak, with Philo, uh, or those who studied Philo uh, more accurately. We've seen the Bible hints towards the existence of a wisdom that pre-existed the world. Philo does, Ben Sira does, the Sifri to Numbers does, Midrash Tanchuma does, Midrash Bereshit Rabbah does, and so does the Talmud. Here we have a brighter from Masechet Psachim 54a, which says, Shiv'ad Varim Nivru'u Kodem Shinivraha Olam. Seven things were created before the world was created. The, the Eluhain, here they are, 
Torah, the Torah, the Tshuva, the concept of repentance, the Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, probably not referring to a physical garden so much as the notion of a heaven or an afterlife, the Gehinnom, which is the kind of place we don't want to be in the afterlife, something like a hell, the Kisei HaKavod, the chair of the throne of glory, whatever exactly that is, Ubeit HaMikdash, the temple, the idea that the temple was built before, uh, was created before the world, is, uh, uh, should be the topic of another class, Vashmo Shel Mashiach, the name of the Messiah. Uh, this is a very esoteric text, but it's right there in uh, the Babylonian Talmud, the Sechet Psachim, 54a. In fact, um, I hope you'll see what I'm doing here. I I'm kind of taking you on a walk through history. We've started with the Bible, the book of Proverbs, Philo and Sirah, the, the Midrashim, the Gemara. Well, the next major stage of Jewish rabbinic thought after the sealing of the Gemara is called the Ge'onim. Um, and in a collection called Tshuvot Ge'onim Sha'arei Tshuva, which is a collection of halachic questions and answers posed to uh, and answered by um, the Ge'onim, um, the following question appears. A halachic question, and it says this. Um, sorry. Oh, oh. Just getting everything ready so that I can actually read it. I've got um, other things going on on my screen. Okay. It says, V'sheshaaltem shliach tzibur asur lo mikivan sheniftach sefer Torah loma afilu teva achat chutz min haktav so the, the person who is leading the uh, congregation in uh, prayer, but in this case in Torah reading, in the public Torah reading, it's forbidden for him, even if the Torah scroll is open before him, it's forbidden for him to say a single uh, um, word of Torah without actually reading it from the, the parchment in front of him. He should uh, um, be very uh, intentional um, not to, um, to look at anything, you know, outside of the, 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 the parchment in front of him. So that every single thing he says should be from the words in front of him. Because we have uh, uh, written uh, in a rabbinic text, When God spoke the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people on Chag HaShavuot, on the festival of Shavuot, it says, and God spoke all of these words. My what does it mean, these? As if they were already there to be pointed to. Amran. 
what this teaches us is that God didn't just say the Ten Commandments. He read them from the parchment, so to speak, that he had before him. And it's therefore really important that when somebody reads the Torah, they should emulate God and not say anything without actually looking at the scripture, the parchment in front of your eyes. That the uh, it's written that the um, first tablets of stone that Moses brought down the mountain were the work of God the, and had been written by God himself. Um, but it seems as if the Midrash that the Gaonim are citing um, applies this idea not just to the Luchot, but to the entire Torah. So God had, so to speak, the entire Torah before him, and that's why we don't read the Torah without looking at the uh, parchment in front of us. So this is an interesting text because it's a, it's a um, application of the Midrash to a halachic question. So the rabbis here are paskening halacha, they're deciding halacha, Jewish law, in consultation with this Midrashic tradition that uh, there exists such a thing as what you might call the heavenly Torah. And had we, had we got more time, um, we could speak about the Rishonim, the medieval rabbis, um, the view that there was a pre-existing Torah is widespread among the Rishonim, um, the introduction to the commentary to the Torah of Nachmanides includes a uh, long and vivid description of the heavenly Torah that pre-existed um, the creation of the world. And um, even Maimonides in the more rationalistic side of the camp uh, argues that every Midrash in which God is presented as consulting something should be understood as referring to angels uh, and angels for the Maimonides were these Aristotelian things called separate intellects but Maimonides believed there was such a thing the rabbis here it might be a metaphor when we call it the Torah but there is something here that pre-exists the world with which so to speak God consults so you see it in the Bible hinted towards. You see it in Philo, you see it in the, in the Midrash, you see it in the, the Babylonian Talmud, you also see it in the Yerushalmi, the Palestinian Talmud, you see it in the, the halachic works of the Gaonim, you see it in mystical Rishonim like um, the Ramban, and you see it in rationalistic Rishonim like the Ramban, you see it in the Zohar, um, um, in the, you know, so in, in the Kabbalistic tradition. So this is a widespread belief. Judaism seems to think that in some sense or other, the Torah pre-existed the world. And if you want to come up with an authentically Jewish theory of revelation, I think that theory of revelation should have something to say about these traditions. 
since they are remarkably widespread. And this is what's going to lead us to what I call the internal problem of revelation. So the problem of revelation that I'm going to be, oh, so uh, Ozzy Orbach asks, uh, why did God have to consult with anyone? Well, that's a great question. Um, and I think that's why Philo, for example, doesn't want um, the thing called the Logos to be too distinct from God himself. Because what does it mean for God to consult something else? And indeed, the Zohar says that there's a sense in which God and the Torah are one. So there's a sense in which there aren't really two things here, God and the Torah, but one. Other people, like the Rambam, would say, no, there really is this thing called... Uh, so I'm, I'm res responding to Ozzy Orbach's question, uh, why does God need to consult with anything? Well, some people respond to that sort of worry by saying that this thing called the Torah isn't truly distinct from God himself. Others in the tradition... Uh, seem to have a different answer, which is that there really is such a thing as the heavenly Torah, and it's not God, but God doesn't really consult with it. That's a metaphor. Rather, it's something like, it's something like God's wisdom personified, that's all. It's not that God consults with it, but it exists. Um, and Barb Kessel says he's modeling humanity. Uh, and yes, Ozzy, this, this relates to the notion that, that Maimonides says God and his knowledge are one and the same thing. Although Maimonides does have this thing called the active intellect, which is distinct from, um, from God. But I don't want to get too much into those details. What I want to say is that whatever the exact philosophical orientation, the heavenly Torah seems to be a... a, a, um, a constant feature of the Jewish tradition. Surely understood slightly differently by different people at different times, but there is such a thing. And this is what's going to lead us to what I call the internal problem of revelation. It's internal because unlike the problems that I'm not going to address today, like problems to do with biblical criticism and problems to do with ethics and problems to do with archaeology, this problem emerges just thinking about the heavenly Torah. And the heavenly Torah is a part of our tradition. So it's an internal problem of revelation. And what is the problem? Well, it can be easily stated. The problem is, what is the relationship between the earthly Torah, by which I'm primarily going to mean here the Chumash, the five books of Moses, what is the relationship between the Chumash and the heavenly Torah? That's the question. And most of the, the plausible answers are problematic, hence the internal problem of revelation. And I just want to speak through the various theories you could have and show you the sorts of problems that emerge. Okay, so the first theory I think is in a sense the most flat-footed. I call it the Pentateuchal theory. And 
you might think from the first reading of the Ramban of Nachmanides in his introduction to the commentary to the Torah, you might think that Nachmanides endorses this theory. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. I actually don't think that he does. I think his theory is slightly more sophisticated than this. Um, but the theory is that the heavenly Torah and the Chumash are identical, letter for letter, word for word. So to speak, what did Moses do when he went up Mount Sinai? He just transcribed the words he saw written on God's Torah. Okay, that would be the Pentateuchal theory. You can see this theory hinted at in a Midrash in Devarim Rabbah, uh, Deuteronomy Rabbah. Um, a Midrash, although I actually have another reading of this Midrash, I don't think it has to be read uh, so as committing itself to the Pentateuchal theory. But Moses says in one of his later sermons to the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, it is not in heaven. And the Midrash explains what that means. Amar lahen Moshe. Moshe explains to them, Shelotomru Moshe acher omedu mevilanu Torah acheret minashamayim that they shouldn't say that maybe one day another Moses will come and stand and bring some other Torah down from heaven. You know, Moses gave us Torah part one. Maybe someone else will come down from heaven and give us Torah part two. You might think they have in mind, for example, a New Testament, right? Kfar ani modia etchem. I have already informed you, lo bashamayim he, it's not in heaven. Shalot nishtayer hemena bashamayim. Nothing of it was left over in heaven. Yes, there was a heavenly Torah, but I copied it down letter for letter. There's nothing left. It's all in our hands. So the Pentateuch, God's hands, and the Pentateuch, sorry, the Torah in God's hands and the, and the Pentateuch in our hands are lexically identical, word for word copies of one another. There are some problems with this theory. Problem number, number one, I think, is in, it's fatalism. There's a general problem in the philosophy of religion which is if God knows the future, he knows already what you're going to do tomorrow and God can't be wrong and he knows already what you're going to do tomorrow infallibly such that he can't be wrong, then it seems as if you can't be free to do otherwise. It's a general problem of, of, of what's called theological fatalism. One well-known answer to that problem is that God is actually outside of time. So it's not quite correct to say, God knows now what you will do tomorrow, because that places God in time with us. Rather, God is outside of time altogether. 
and he sees what's happening here in time and he sees what's happening in other places in time. But for, he, for him, it's as if those times are all happening at once. So his knowledge doesn't interfere with our freedom. But if you believe that, um, the Torah that Moses copied on Mount Sinai was word for word identical with the Torah in heaven. Then as Moses wrote it down, God's knowledge of the future entered into our timeline. Moses, for example, should already have known that Korach would one day rebel because he wrote it down at Har Sinai. And since the Torah can't be wrong, uh, Korach would have had no free choice about this issue. Um, Moses wrote down before the daughters of Tzlofchad came to ask their question, that they would come to ask the question. And by writing it down, he took God's timeless knowledge and brought it into time. There are ways you could perhaps avoid this problem. Maybe God only gave Moses a glimpse of little bits of his Torah in installments. And indeed, there is a rabbinic opinion that Moses didn't receive the Torah all in one go. So maybe God waited until after the rebellion of Korach to reveal that bit to Moses. So this problem we maybe could escape. But there's a, oh, I see a question. Can you say again how you translated the last four words? Yes. That nothing was left of it, of her, in the heavens. Okay. Um, there's another problem with the Pentateuchal theory. It's a problem with divine morality. There are places in the Bible, as we know, where God doesn't come off looking all that moral. And the rabbis were worried about this right from very early days. For example, the laws of the captive woman in the book of Deuteronomy treat this poor woman in ways that made the rabbis very uncomfortable. Certainly, it was better than allowing these women, God forbid, to have been raped and, uh, and left uh, after that uh, to the ravages of uh, the patriarchal society. Um, but what those laws allow for, the laws of the captive woman, are still really, really horrible. And what the rabbis say is that, well, this is a compromise. God was speaking with the evil inclination of humanity. He knew that at a given time in the, so to speak, moral evolution of humanity, there was only so far you could push people towards morality. Well, that's a fine explanation. But if the Pentateuch is identical to God's heavenly Torah, and nothing of that Torah was left up there, it's all down here, then it seems as if every law in the Torah is an ideal, not a compromise, because it was written like that even before God created the world. It was always supposed to be that way. That means that the, the tactic by which the rabbis try to free God of the accusation of legislating moral commandments, that tactic 
of saying, oh, this wasn't ideal. God was accommodating, compromising with an unideal situation. Uh, it doesn't seem like that strategy would be open to you if you ad adopted the Pentateuchal theory. Another problem, the stability of the text. Yes, Orthodox Judaism tends to have a very strong faith in the idea that the Pentateuch is not only divine, but that it was dictated in some sort of a by God, either at Har Sinai or in installments along the way, 40 years of the wilderness. But it's widely recognized by the rabbis from very early times that at least small discrepancies did enter into the text. For example, that's the reason why of Moshe Sofer, the Khatam Sofer, says when we write a Torah, we don't make a we don't make a benediction because we're not exactly sure that we're writing it perfectly correctly because we know that the text we have is more or less stable but not exactly um, and that that should lead us to worry right do we really have an exact copy of uh, the heavenly Torah another problem scientific wisdom one of the functions of the heavenly Torah is to be the wisdom that's manifest in God's creating the world. And there is certainly a huge amount of wisdom manifest in the Pentateuch. But do you think that there is quantum physics in the Pentateuch? Do you think that the Higgs boson is alluded to somewhere in the Pentateuch? Surely that's in the heavenly Torah, because that's part of the wisdom that was manifest in the creation as God strung every atom together. But that's not in our Pentateuch, is it? Well, maybe. Nachmanides suggests that there are great scientific secrets hidden in words of the Bible that only the very, very wise can decode. But it certainly isn't apparent to everybody that Moses somehow received alongside the Torah an absolutely complete quantum physics and nuclear physics, uh, that that's somehow implicit in the Pentateuch. It's there in the heavenly Torah, I have no doubt. Is it there in the Chumash? I have my doubts. However, the Pentateuchal theory is good for one thing in particular. Orthodox Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism in general treats the Chumash as what you might call omni-significant. Every single letter has halachic relevance. This theory would explain why. Because it's a letter-for-letter -letter copy of the heavenly Pentateuch. So the Pentateuchal theory comes with some uh, plus points, minus points. To speed up, but that's okay. Number of more superior. I'm going to have to speed up now, um, but it's okay because the Pentateuchal theory is really the basis for the next few theories. Okay. 
Here's what I call the Pentateuchal Plus theory. And in order to explain it, um, I'm going to share with you a poem written by Sadja Gaon, translated, I think, by Dr. Abigail Rock, um, but translated beautifully so as to stay uh, in rhyming, so, so as to preserve the notion of rhyme. Here, here it is. Our gods, is, he's talking about the Karaites, who are the Jews that don't have a rabbinic law, who don't have a Torah Shabalpeh, an oral law. Our God's law is swapped as they hop to forbid the licit while prohibitions drop without fear and without hesitation. How many cubits must a hut measure when I build a sukkah? How long and how wide for holiday pleasure? And what of its height to plan it straight? How many grapes the, for the poor must be saved? In, is any of thee with a chisel engraved? Or does scripture insinuate? i.e. there's so much the Torah doesn't tell us about how to live as Jews. As we affix our fringes to four-cornered things, how many coils and how many strings? Do you know if it is ten or eight? All of these and like them so many, I ask the verse readers if they can find any to lay out for us a fine explanation. But Mishnah and Talmud continue to reach us and derive all of these plainly to teach us, and so many more beyond enumeration. The point of Sajigaon is that the, the Pentateuch, the Chumash, would have been of little use if it wasn't accompanied with a Torah Balper, with an oral tradition. So what you might say is, ah, the Chumash, represents a fragment of the heavenly Torah and the rest of the heavenly Torah is included in the oral law. So once you put together the Chumash, the Mishnah and the Talmud, then you have a faithful copy of the heavenly law. I call this the Pentateuchal plus theory. It makes an improvement on the Pentateuchal theory. Uh, the fatalism thing is still an issue, but the divine morality is no longer a problem because not only does the heavenly Torah include the book of Deuteronomy, it also includes the rabbi's explanations of those commandments. We still might have a problem with the stability of the text and we still might have a problem with scientific wisdom. For instance, do you believe that the Higgs boson, if it's not hidden somewhere in the Pentateuch, is hiding in a Tasefta somewhere, or a Mishnah somewhere, or a Midrash somewhere? Unlikely. And it, it's perhaps just as good at dealing with omnis, omnisignificance. Well, let me throw another plus in. This I call the Pentateuchal plus plus theory. And here the idea is, ah, the heavenly Torah contains the Pentateuch, the Mishnah Talmud, and everything else that we ever receive, and some other stuff as well. Stuff that never made it down here. Now, that theory will no longer hold the scientific wisdom problem, because God never revealed the Higgs boson to any rabbi, and that's fine. He revealed 
the stuff that we did to know. And that's what's included in the Earth Borough. What's in included in both written and oral is a copy of what we know from the heavenly Torah. Okay. But there are some other theories. Let me just quickly share them with you. I call this the paradigm theory. You might think that there's something heretical about the idea that any collection of human wisdom could really encapsulate divine wisdom. You might think there's something heretical about the idea that any words in a human language could really attain to the deep mysteries of the divine. You might therefore think that the heavenly Torah has no words at all. It's pre-linguistic. And what our Torah is, is something like an approximation of something that no words can aptly capture. That what we have is perhaps the best approximation, which is why we put so much weight on the Torah, the best approximation, but nonetheless an approximation. And in order to motivate this, I just want to read you a very beautiful, there's so many texts I could have brought in this particular tradition, um, but I just want to read you one uh, particularly beautiful text from the Kedushat Levi before I go to the very last slide. This is about the shofar blast, Rosh Hashanah. Hashem, may he be blessed, emanates emanations. This is Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bidichev, an early Hasidic thinker. He emanates emanations. And we, in our prayers, perform a contraction with the emanation, each one to his will. This one, this one performs a contraction with the letter that spells life in order to pray for life. And this one with the letters that spell wisdom in order to pray for wisdom. And this one with the letters that spell wealth in order to pray for wealth. And so too for every good, each according to his will. And behold, all that there is in the spiritual world has a correlate in the material world. Accordingly, we behold that in the material world, there is a voice and there is speech. The voice is all inclusive and the speech is the contraction of the voice into the letters of speech. And so too in the spiritual world, on Rosh Hashanah, the voice of the shofar is the emanation from the creator, blessed be he. When God speaks to us, he speaks to us in a voice that has no words. And then our job is to clothe that voice into words. That which we say in our, rich, in our Rosh Hashanah liturgy, which has three topics, namely God's sovereignty, God's memory, and verses about the trophy blasts, is the contraction by which we contract the emanations from the Creator, blessed be He, through the letters of the alphabet, each one according to His will. And behold, the all-inclusive emanation from the Creator, may He be blessed, is the aspect of the written Torah. And the contraction of the emanation with the alphabet that we create is the aspect of the oral Torah. 
for the oral Torah is the will of Israel when they create the explanation of the written Torah. The idea is there's a sense in which even the Chumash is actually oral Torah. Because as soon as we try to clothe God's wisdom into letters, it becomes oral Torah. As Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin would later put it, when you read the words of the written Torah and they come out of your mouth, the written Torah is already translated into oral Torah. Um, I'm agreeing with what people are saying here. Torah by definition had to be imperfect because it is interpreted through humans. That's fine, but in fact it's also perfect because the angels couldn't have the Torah. It's only by being clothed into human language can the Torah come down to this earth. So it's a, uh, it's a perfection. It's an imperfection which is also a perfection. Um, I'm not really going to have time to talk about this last theory. Uh, uh, I was appealing to the Neza HaKodesh, a great Achron who, uh, early Achron, who wrote commentaries on uh, Bereshit Rabbah. Um, but what, what I want to say about the foundational fragment theory is that maybe God actually only gave us a small amount of Torah, that, that what the, the heavenly Torah was, was something like the things that, that a society really, really needs to know, that was created before the world, God gave that to Moshe, and then we had to build upon it. That's another view. Now the problem with the foundational fragment theory and the um, paradigm theory is you might think they put the gap between the Chumash and God's word they make too big a gap, right? The Chumash is holy. It's not just some human creation, some human grasping towards something holy. It's holy itself. It's perfect. Torah Hashem Tamima, although that is actually, God's, God's Torah is perfect, but that actually is Torah Hashem rather than Torah Moshe. It's God's Torah that's perfect. But nonetheless, we think of the Torah as perfect. Um, we, we give our entire lives to uh, uh, live according to its precepts. So you might worry. Although I think, and we'll talk about this next time, that if you have reason to believe that God gave the rabbinic tradition the authority to create Torah in partnership with him, then even the things which humans created are appropriated by God and they become his. And in the act of becoming his, they take on new meaning. Much like Lahavdil, when Marcel Duchamp would go and buy a wine rack in a art gallery, uh, sorry, in a, in a carpentry shop, and then place it in an art gallery, he appropriated something that he hadn't made himself, but gave it new meaning. So yes, according to the paradigm theory and the foundational fragment theory, the Torah itself is a human imitation of the divine or a human intimation towards the divine, but it's one that God approves of and therefore adopts. And in adopting it, it becomes holy. It becomes God's own. Um, but what I wanted to basically show you is that all of these theories have problems. Some of them sound heretical. It sound like God's wisdom can be contained in the words of the Torah. 
others of these theories sound heretical because they make it sound like God's wisdom isn't contained in the Torah. Some of these theories sound heretical um, for other reasons too. Basically, wherever you go, there's the risk of problem or heresy. And this is what I call the internal problem of revelation. It's the problems that emerge when you try to answer the question, how is this heavenly Torah that Judaism believes in related to the earthly Torah that we have in our hands today? And none of the answers, I think, are wholly satisfactory, even from a perspective of resolutely orthodox Judaism. Um, and my shameless plug at the end is that um, this, this uh, class was basically a summary of chapter six of uh, The Principles of Judaism, a book that I have just recently authored, coming out with uh, Oxford University Press uh, on June the 30th, and it's available for pre-order. And our next class will be a summary of chapter seven. And that's about it. Um, I just see some things in the chat. Uh, Bar uh, Kessel was talking about partnership, and there are lots of midrashim about how the Torah is a partnership with God. God gave us, according to one midrash, the flour and the flax, but he wanted us to make it into bread and a tablecloth. Uh, uh, Torah was supposed to be a collaborative endeavor. Bishvil Israel shenik kret reshit. Israel has the power to create too, uh, um, says Nissan. A consideration from Robert, perhaps worth bringing up. Does the oral Torah have to be confined to Orthodox rabbinic traditions or can it, can it extend to any Jew who interprets for the sake of heaven? I think that's an absolutely valid question to ask. And it's one of the reasons why some Orthodox rabbis would think that some of these theories are problematic. Because once you give too much power to interpretation, who is allowed to do the interpreting? But we'll talk about that in our next class. Um, uh, does, God have, does Israel have equal status to the Logos? Nissan's asking. These are interesting questions. And yes, the Zohar says that God, Israel, and the Torah are somehow, in some sense, one thing. But I don't claim to understand the Zohar because I'm not yet 40. Um, um, but thank you, everybody, for uh, participating in this class. I hope you'll be able to join us same time tomorrow. It's an honor to be giving these classes uh, uh, under the auspices of Drisha. Um, and um, I look forward to continuing. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining.